0: Um, at the beginning of the time period, uh, fentanyl represented less than two and a half percent of all the sales of opioids on the dark net. But by the end of the time period that we studied, it was up to around about 22% of all the sales, which are significant changes.
1: When tackling societal problems like the opioid epidemic in the US, there are two ways of approaching it. One is to reduce demand by organising treatment programmes or reducing the underlying reasons why people may become addicted in the first place. But that's hard. So governments often turn to the other route, reducing supply. And that's what the US government did in 2014 when it rescheduled hydrocodone combination products from Schedule 3 to Schedule 2, essentially making it harder for people to obtain a prescription. Now reducing that legal supply, without in hand reducing the demand, led to fears that those people with an opioid addiction would just turn to illicit routes to obtain their drugs. A new research published on BMJ.com has attempted to find out if that happened. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor, and I'm joined by three of the authors of that paper. James Martins, an Associate Professor of Criminology at Swinburne University in Australia. Hi James.
2: Hi, Duncan. Good to be with you.
1: Judith Aldridge is a Professor of Criminology at the University of Manchester. Hi Judith.
2: Hello, Duncan.
1: And Jack Cunliffe is a lecturer in Quantitative Methods and Criminology at the University of Kent. Hello, Jack.
0: Hello, Duncan. How are you doing?
1: Great. Thanks. Um, so this is the first time I've ever spoken to criminologists and it seems like I've got a load of questions here. Um, but the first is, it seems like this is obviously a really important thing to look at. Everyone knows about the history of prohibition when it comes to alcohol in the estates um, and the un- unintended consequences of that. So I mean it seems like this is a really big question and one that it feels like we should have Maybe answered a while ago. Um, is it still a big question in criminology?
2: Um, in terms of uh, in terms of drug prohibition, I, I don't think that there is really. I, certainly, in Australia, you'd be hard pressed to find uh, a criminologist I think who thinks that blanket prohibition of illicit drugs and that, particularly, you know, an enforcement-led prohibition is uh, is good public policy. I think we're seeing more and more, and I, I think certainly we'll see in, in in hindsight, that uh, the war on drugs in particular, that sort of law enforcement led militarization in in many countries um, in terms of drug prohibition is probably one of the greatest policy failures of the 20th century.
1: That's fairly unequivocal then. Um, So what you've done here is look at the dark net, which I suppose is one of the latest fronts in in that war. And for a start, I think it's worth actually exploring what that is. Um, I suppose in my head, I'm kind of envisaging it as some sort of evil Amazon. Um, What is it actually like?
3: Well, in making a comparison or an analogy as you have to Amazon, you're not really that far off, actually, in so far as um, crypto markets or what's more commonly known as darknet drug markets are platforms that bring together multiple sellers, just like Amazon does, just like eBay does, mm. um, and buyers can <clears throat> comparison shop and they can comparison shop on products, on price, and on vendor or seller um, reputation on the marketplace. There are some key differences. Um, um, I wouldn't necessarily characterize these things as evil <laughs> by any stretch <laughs> of the imagination, but. Uh, the key differences between the, these um, legal comparisons and um, drug crypto markets is that there are anonymity mechanisms in place. <clears throat> so um, payment isn't by credit card or debit card that carry identity information, but payment is by um, a, a cryptocurrency where that makes it very difficult to trace uh, payments and recipients. Uh, Bitcoin is the most well-known of these and uh secondly the these marketplaces themselves are in an encrypted location on the internet um which is why the word darknet applies it's not necessarily because by definition what goes on there is nefarious uh but simply because it's it's a it's a dark place it's a a a, a place that's um more hidden and less easy to trace to individuals and so that's what enables um, illicit as well as legal trading um, to happen um, on, on these marketplaces.
1: So it's actually relatively easy for people to discover this and access it. You don't need to be sort of clued into any, you know, have any sort of pre-existing um, networks that would would allow you to, to get drugs. You know, you can go onto these and, and, and find things to buy um, fairly simply.
3: I'm not sure if I would entirely agree that uh, it's as straightforward or as simple as eBay or Amazon for a couple of reasons. One of them is buying and selling Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies um, is is much trickier. It isn't as straightforward as using a credit card. And you do need to do your research and work out how these things, I mean, it's, you know, not wildly difficult, but it's just not as simple. The bar bar for access is a little bit higher. And secondly, you've got to find the marketplace. Now there's lots of um, Clearnet, sort of the regular internet, locations that um, keep track of these marketplaces, but you've got to have the URL, and the URLs don't look exactly like the URL, it's not like Mm eBay.com type thing. Um, again, it's not a huge bar, but uh, a lot of people need to learn these things first.
2: Um, I'd just like to say, in terms of the structure of these sites, um, and one thing that, that differentiates them um, from some of the clear net sites that we see is, uh, unlike a lot of online stores, these uh, sites, like Judith said, um, similar to Amazon and eBay in that they're decentralized, so the sites themselves don't actually sell anything. Instead, what they do is they they supply this um, centralized infrastructure like eBay does, where buyers and sellers who uh, operate independently and who can be located anywhere around the world, it it provides a secure digital space for these uh, buyers and sellers to interact with one another um, and also once the transaction is completed, the drugs are sent in the post. And this is one of the things that makes crypto markets very resilient. Um, So we've seen examples uh, before of law enforcement takedowns of crypto markets or when crypto markets themselves might might shut unexpectedly, uh, they bounce back quite quickly because the buyers and the sellers are still out there. They simply migrate to a different site, populate that site and then they're up and running again.
1: Now, given the the fact that, you know, you need to have the URLs um, of the sites that are selling things uh, and that there is this level of anonymity um, about the transactions that are taking place, how is it that you were able to actually look at this data and extract any information about what's going
0: on? So, yeah, uh, essentially, because these markets are sort of in... Clear sight, you know, as I said, as uh, Judith and James have said, there's maybe, it takes a day to get sort of set up. you have been able to access them. Uh, But once you've gone through that process, you can pretty much see everything that's happening on the market. Uh, And the fourth uh, member of our team, at the University of Montreal, um, he's been aware of these things since um, September, well, for quite a long time. And he first uh, collected data from these markets, Uh, back in September 2013. And what he does, um, and what we use for our data, uh, is essentially a download of all of the web pages that are available on the markets. Um, And he's been doing this, as I say, since September 2013. He's been doing it regularly. Uh, He collects the data, he processes it somewhat, and he organizes it into a sort of three-level database, which has got information on all of the products that are for sale on the markets. Um, all of the people who are selling those products and information on the feedbacks which are received by those products which we use as a proxy for the number of sales. Um, Alongside that we also have some other information like where the product's shipping from um, and a few other bits and bobs like the size of the uh, package. Just by looking at the, the, as a human, if you look at the web pages you can see this quite easily uh, but, of course, when you scale it over the millions and millions of products over the three years of our study, um, it's a lot of information. So we use various sort of automated um, processing uh, routines that organize the data. And then there's a bit of a human element as well, which does the sort of final bit of the cleaning. And that results in a data set, which we're able to use for our analysis. Great. So
1: it's pretty good data, but it's not 100% um you know, because you're using a proxy for, for things like transactions then.
3: It is worth pointing out, though, that although you, you say it's not 100%, and indeed, we don't have 100% of the transactions. We have, we think, something like between 71% of them and um, somewhat higher. Uh, and although that's not a, a perfect capture Generally, our window into what happens in illicit drug markets is uh, tiny and very biased by comparison. It may be based on um, interviews with drug dealers. It may be based on controlled purchases that law enforcement carry out. Tiny, you know, tiny data sets um, collected for very particular, often operational purposes. This is millions of... (laughs) transactions. And although it may not be a perfect population of those transactions, it's nearly perfect. And what it represents is a massive step change in the quality of the window we have onto the world of illicit drug sales. Mm. So this is what we have here. It's effectively unprecedented. There's no other way of finding out uh, what happens with illicit drug sales, but particularly with our studies, our study, how changes in the law um, affect illicit drug sales. Mm.
1: And um, I was going to say, I mean, even if the data isn't necessarily accurate, as in this is 100% of what's going on, presumably it does allow you to look at trends um, given the, the the systematic way in which you're doing it over time, which is obviously
0: important for your study. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Um, yeah, as Judith says, it's like from a technical perspective, uh, which is a side that I'm more involved in, um, there are some difficulties to overcome. We're talking about 120, 130 gigabytes worth of data. Um, and it does have some problems, but as Judith says, it's the best we've got, and yes, it's consistent over the timeframe that we've got as well. So it's very good for looking at those trends, as you exactly mentioned.
1: Great, thank you. Well, that's really useful background. So now if we kind of go into to what you're looking at. And this all started because In the States, they changed the the regulation around oxycodone products, restricting the ability of people to get a repeat prescription easily. Um, And you wanted to see if that then related to an increase um, in illicit uh, sales of these drugs, essentially people being unable to access them legally and then accessing them through a different market. could you tell us a little bit about, you know, what the, the relationship there is? Um, you, you talk in the paper about the iron law of prohibition. You know, is that what this is all kind of based around?
2: Yeah, that, that's true. And just to clarify, um, uh, the restriction was for hydrocodone rather than oxycodone. So um, the, those two drugs uh, are probably the the two most heavily implicated in the creation of the US opioid ep- epidemic, the two legal uh, prescription painkillers, opioid painkillers. And um, yeah, it was the, it was the reclassification of products containing hydrocodone in mm-hmm. 2014 that we were examining. Uh, and yeah, the, the iron law of prohibition. So for people who are perhaps not uh, familiar with that concept, refers to the tendency for um, products once they um, have been banned and uh, the legal market is restricted or um, uh, is eliminated, then people turn to black market substitutes, particularly in the absence of any uh, any demand reduction. But what the Iron Law of Prohibition um, states is that People don't simply switch to the to an analog to an, to an exactly similar kind of product. They once they get pushed into the black market, they tend to access higher potency substitutes. So in the days of alcohol prohibition, uh, instead of people who maybe previously drank beer or wine or lower alcohol um, lower alcohol products, once prohibition was implemented. Uh, people switched to higher-potency products such as gins, whiskey, and so forth. And the reason for that was because uh, it was more profitable and easier for for smugglers, uh, for bootleggers to get those particular products in. What our study shows is something quite different, um, and, and that is once people are accessing the darknet, the demand actually seems to change. We're, we're not exactly sure of the reason why, uh, but instead of people accessing hydrocodone products, we initially saw a rise in oxycodone, which is a slightly more powerful mm. version of um, uh, drug uh, similar to hydrocodone, but then demand for that started tapering off, and we saw an accompanying rise in fentanyl, which is a very powerful synthetic opioid.
1: That's really interesting. Um, but shall we back up a little bit and and talk through uh, what you actually found. So Jack, you were analysing the data. Can you sort of take us through um, very briefly sort of what your methods were and and what it was, what pattern you found um, when looking at that, that mass of data?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so the essential process was to uh, take this huge data set uh, and try and work out uh, at each time point that we've got in the data, the proportion of uh, the sales, um, that were the, of total sales, of total sales of drugs, that were attributable to each of the drug categories that we uh, report on. Um, now, the reason we use proportions as appo- or percentages uh, as opposed to the raw figures is that over the time frame that we're talking about, there was a general increase in market activity. Mm. Uh, and there was also problems with us. It was not problems, but um, we don't know the... Completeness of the data that we've got. For instance, some markets might have been missed. Some might have had some downtime. Uh, various reasons, which mean that we needed to use proportion to control for other sort of factors that were happening uh, on the on the markets. So we looked at the across those six different drug types, both within the USA and outside the USA, to look to see how much of the market share each one, each product group had at each time point. Uh, And our expectation, uh, in our wildest dreams, was that we'd see quite a clear increase in the amount of uh, the market that prescription opioids uh, accounted for after this change. Um, And that's exactly what we did see. And on top of that, we also saw that there were no changes in any other drug product categories. So, using the sort of logic of if one thing's changing and nothing else is, and there was a reason for that change, we sort of attributed that to the law change in these hydrocodone combination products.
3: We not only saw in, in our results um, a, a large rise after uh, the, the change in the legislation uh, in hydrocodone products being sold and bought bought and sold um, on darknet markets, uh, but it wasn't it wasn't a spike it was it was a sustained increase in sales and then as time went on we began to see the switch to uh, stronger products um, first oxycodone and then eventually fentanyl uh, so what our study did was show two things effectively that although it can't um, demonstrate certainly that the the uh, results that we found were caused by the change in the law. They coincided perfectly with the change in the law, but only for dark net sellers in the United States. These same rises weren't happening for dark net sellers in other countries. So that really gave us some confidence that the change was quite likely, that we saw in sales was quite likely to be, to have been linked to the change in the law. And then picking up on the iron law of prohibition, we saw the move towards more concentrated and potent products. And the one that is of particular interest in this study, of course, is the move towards the buying and selling of fentanyl, which is a ba- it's not just somewhat more potent. It's, it's you know, maybe a hundred times more potent um, yes. than some comparable products. And therefore, you know, the, the sort of public health implications of this. Um, are, are significant and
0: important. Yeah, perhaps, sorry, perhaps I can put a little bit of flesh on the bones of this. what we're talking about. So in terms of numbers, in terms of actually sort of understanding the sort of changes that we're seeing, um, at the beginning of the time period and up to October 2014, prescription opioids in the USA accounted for about 6% of all the sales on darknet markets. Um, at the, from this September 2014 um, change in the law, We saw a steady rise uh, to the end of our uh, time period when prescription opioids represented around about 13% of all the sales that were happening in the USA. So quite a significant increase, about 4 percentage points per year. Um, And there were no changes in any other categories in any other place. So prescription stimulants, uh, things like Modafinil or Ritalin were all the same. There was a flat trend there. sedatives, diazepam, Xanax, they were the same Um, and there was no change in prescription opioids outside the USA. And in terms of the final point about the movement towards more potent forms of the drugs, um, at the beginning of the time period, uh, fentanyl represented less than two and a half percent of all the sales of opioids on the darknet, but by the end of the time period that we studied, it was up to around about 22% of our sales, which are significant changes.
1: It really is. I mean, th- there's two things on there that sort of spring to mind. Firstly, um, you know, we're talking sort of slightly abstractly about sales here, but these are people who have been pushed into criminal activity by a change in the law because their, their supply has been restricted, but they haven't at the same time you know, had the ability to, to reduce their demand for it.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right, Duncan. I think that's that's probably one of the big take-home messages from this story, uh, is, or from this research, rather, is that we have solid empirical evidence now that a supply-side restriction very likely caused uh, a significant expansion in the black market. Um, and I think it's probably safe to say that we're, we're not arguing in the in our article, that all of the people that were unable to access um, hydrocodone products legally announced doing so on the darknet. The darknet is likely capturing only a small proportion of people who are now acquiring these drugs I- illegally. So this is a you know, rapidly expanding, probably conventional market, much more so than the darknet market. Um, and this points to the dangers and unintended consequences, particularly of employing supply-side restrictions in the absence of effective demand reduction or or indeed harm reduction services which we know the research well demonstrates now are much more effective and a much more uh resource efficient way of addressing different types of drug harm
1: yeah absolutely and then the other bit on that i was going to say you know you've seen this explosion like a doubling of the 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 market for these these drugs Um, so this is creating another huge revenue stream for, for for the criminals who are selling these drugs.
2: Yeah, that's right. Just as in the days of alcohol prohibition led directly to, to the emergence of Al Capone and uh, the other bootleggers who made a fortune and massively expanded organized crime in that country. So too is the opioid crisis, which it needs to be pointed out, was created in large part because of lax regulatory practices as a direct result of the influence of pharmaceutical companies in the United States. This was a legally created uh, drug epidemic, unlike, say, the crack cocaine epidemic in the 1980s, which was always something that was associated with the black market. This was a legally created epidemic, one in which pharmaceutical companies have made massive profits, profits from. And there's, there's, there's a
0: really interesting point on that as well within the paper uh, that we make, which is the rise in the um, number of transactions preceded the rise in the number of products being available. So uh, we first see the change in the trends happening in the number of sales with the same number of products being available. And then a little bit later on, just at a slightly lower level, Uh, we then see an increase in the market availability. So there seems to be an increase first in the number of sales and then market responds and makes them more available. The number of listings increases as well. Uh, So it seems to be demonstrative of uh, consumer-led demand. So it's not something that's coming from the sellers. It's something that the sellers react to afterwards.
3: So I think what we try to do here is resist um, casting or framing, um, dark net markets as the kind of source of the problem and the thing that needs to be cracked down on. We absolutely, um, think that legal regulations of pharmaceutical companies, of prescribing practices need to be in place. This is, this is the features of all, uh, well-regulated markets in, um, psychoactive sw- substances, whether medicines or otherwise. Um, and where people have problems to reduce demand and problematic use and reduce the harms that arise from that by working on the demand side as well. Darknet markets in themselves, cracking down on them doesn't seem to have an effect, and as uh, the results that that Jack has just discussed show, this really is demand-led. So we need effective legal regulation, and we need effective... Uh, demand reduction and harm reduction practices combined together. And that's not what we're seeing in the United States now. But the but the response of government in recent announcements seems to be, let's crack down on dark de- drug markets. And that's what um, evidence suggests is not going to be effective and isn't going to help people who really need help.
0: Regulation in general of the drug trade is not necessarily a bad thing. But it needs to be regulation at an early stage, not at a late stage. Um, We saw since the early 90s this huge increase in these prescription opioids. And regulations come too late when there's a high demand. Regulation to address demand is good if something is dangerous. But once the genie's out of the bottle, so to speak, then we need to take a different approach. We need to take something that affects the demand. Anything that that tries to affect the supply seems to us, and it happened with alcohol, and it seems to be happening now with prescription opioids, is almost doomed to failure.
2: Yeah, I think that that's a really good point you make there, Jack. And I think that one of the other points to to bring this home, and I guess focusing a bit more on the human factor here, is, you know, the the people who are accessing these drugs uh, have really been left in the lurch. Um, You know, the creation of the opioid crisis, um, the huge profits that pharmaceutical companies have made on the back of this crisis, and now we simply see this supply-side intervention in the absence of any real comprehensive effort to treat uh, addiction, demand, um, or to ameliorate any of these harms. The people who are most affected by this, the ones really left uh, scrounging now, and this is you know, reflected in the huge number of opioid overdoses and indeed deaths that we see in the United States now. So there's a really tragic human cost here. These these debates about prohibition, I think for a long time researchers uh, have been quite tentative in explaining their findings, in critiquing uh, drug policy, but there's a real human cost here. And if we get it wrong, as I think the United States very clearly has done, uh, there are huge human consequences, lives lost and, uh, and suffering and so forth. So, when I think for people who are advocates of drug policy reform, we need to be quite forthright um, and shift some of the blame and responsibility back on these regulatory failures and these laws that have been very ineffective in treating the problem and have been very effective in creating vast unintended um, uh, uh, problems uh, that that quite often uh, dwarf the scale of the initial problem that they're ostensibly intended to solve.
1: You've been listening to James Martin, Judith Aldridge and Jack Cunliffe talk about their new research, effect of restricting the legal supply of prescription opioids on buying through online illicit marketplaces. That's now online. On BMJ.com. That's all for this podcast, but we'll be back soon with an interview with Don Berrick, former head of Medicare and Medicaid, and quality improvement guru. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from so you don't miss out on that. I'm Duncan Jarvis. Thanks for listening.